Welcome to Short Course, episode 65, for October 30th, 2019. I'm your host, Ben Barry. Oh boy, uh, I have to say it is good to be back. I actually checked the uh, file, the, the, the cloud folder where I back up all these files. It's been uh, August. It's been August since I recorded, so it's been a couple months. And honestly, I wish I could say that that was for any single particular reason, but but it, it really hasn't. It's it's just been a confluence of a whole bunch of things. Things have been really busy at work. Um, and honestly, I've just been practicing. I've been practicing a lot. So I'm, I'm recording this on a Wednesday night. On Saturday, Steph and I will get in the car and drive down to Florida for nationals. So this is, you know, the week before nationals. I was actually planning on recording this last night and then the weather looked good. And so I went to practice again because I thought, why not? This is this is a good chance. Let's get it in. And of course, tonight it's been rainy all day, so tonight is an excellent day for podcasting. Uh, but other than that, it's it's just been a whole bunch of things. It, it's been, you know, work has been a big one. But uh, other than that, there's just a lot of things going on personally, and I have had no no shortage of things to talk about. Just um, you know, priorities. I one of the things that I've definitely been doing this year that I, I did not do in the past, especially last year, I think, was uh, I'm I'm putting practice ahead of the podcast. And I know that seems like a simple thing to do, but it was very easy when I kept myself to that one a week podcast schedule when Thursday nights rolled around to, to do the podcast first. And I always told myself, you know, I would dry fire afterwards if I had energy or sometimes when things were going better, I would record the podcast, go dry fire, and then kind of come back and edit and post it because you know you you, you don't want to be trying to record and 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 make a good podcast episode when it's kind of the end of the night and you're tired. But at the same time, you can't really dry fire very well when it's the end of the night and you're tired. And so I, I would try and do both of those. In a lot of cases, I I just wouldn't. And so there were many weeks last year where the the podcast did just edge out practice. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I am saying that that is likely a consequence of, of sort of holding myself to that one a week schedule. And so by freeing myself from that this year, I, I have reprioritized things. And so practice has, has been coming first. And, you know, I have to say the, the fruits of that have, have been noticeable. I tend to think that, you know, as you get better in this sport, the and and this is largely true that the improvements become smaller and smaller. You know, you're you're not going to get when you're first practicing, you know, the first 6 months that you start dry firing, you're probably going to see the biggest gains of of your entire shooting career because after that you've sort of plucked all the low-hanging fruit. Now, that said, I will say this is the first competition season for me where I've really been able to just focus on being a competitor. You know, last year in particular was a, a pretty busy year. I was not practicing a whole lot because I'd, I'd started doing classes, which I still, you know, I, I look back fondly on. I'm, I'm glad that I did it. But the way that my practice was set up at the time, going after work during the week wasn't an option. And so teaching two classes a month and shooting one match a month meant I only had that fourth weekend. I, I could only go practice that that one weekend a month, and that just it, it wasn't it wasn't enough to sort of keep up with the the other demands on my time. And so this year, not having the podcast, 
sort of on a, on a schedule, not teaching classes and being able to go out to practice, you know, when, <laughs> so the sun went down at 623 today, which is uh, quite a far cry from the height of summer when I think it was going down around 830, which was awesome because, you know, you can get in a, a good solid practice session after work. Not so much these days, but that's the peril of practicing for nationals. That is the first week in November. So I, I can't complain too much. At least uh, I did get to, to go practice some. But all that said, the rewards are definitely showing up. Like I, I, I do feel like I am shooting significantly better than I was a year ago. And I feel like I have made the most progress year to year, you know, from a nationals to a nationals. Uh, I definitely feel like I have, I have improved more in the last year than in any other, any other single year. So that's good. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to translate that into having too high expectations of myself because, well, frankly, it just, it won't help at nationals, but I already know that this year has been a success for me just based on my, my internal metrics of, of my own shooting. So that's cool. And, and I'm kind of looking at going to nationals as, as just a chance to try and recognize that, uh, if I can, but you know, if something goes wrong and, and the results don't go my way, then, you know, so be it. There, there is, there, there is always next year and there are club matches after that. So I'm not, I'm not pinning everything on this one match. Uh, but I am looking forward to it and I'm going to certainly try and do my best. But what I actually wanted to talk about today is the match that, that I just shot the big, the big match that just happened here in North Carolina, which was our state match, the, the 2019 North Carolina section. I got the opportunity to work this match in part because it was, it was at my home club. We, we ended up hosting it this year for the first time since 2015. And there, there's, there's, there's a lot to say about this. So it's definitely going to be a, a longer episode, but I, I wanted to go ahead and get all this on tape and, and put it out there before sort of nationals comes along and all the other, all, all the news that comes out of that kind of put a, put a nice bow on this and, and talk about this match because um, it was really good. It was a genuinely excellent match. I think Um, I got to see some of the production behind the scenes, but everything that competitors said about it, I think has been positive. Not everything, obviously, but the, the general sentiment has been, has been generally positive. And I just wanted to sort of talk through what I, what I thought went well and what I think other matches can, can take away from it. Now, the the caveat that I will put on this is is I think this match stands strongly on its own. I think it doesn't necessarily need these caveats, but I, I want to talk a little bit about this stuff just because I do think that it it bears mentioning. And what I what I'm talking about here is this match almost didn't happen at all. Um, if we wind the clock back to 2018, the North Carolina section match was scheduled to happen the same weekend that Hurricane Florence ended up coming ashore in North Carolina. And when the call was made to cancel the match, I, quite rightly, the, the the storm track had it basically coming straight up the middle of the state and as like a hurricane, as a category four hurricane, something like that, like serious hurricane coming straight over the range where it was, where the match was planned to be. And so the, the organizers said the match is canceled the it turned out there wasn't really a, a plan B. No refunds were offered. A discount on next year was offered. That didn't go over well. Folks started to get rather bothered. I think justifiably so. 
And the leadership of that match just basically recused themselves, um, resigned, said, you know, this is um, someone else's problem. And Stephanie Berry, who I happen to be married to, stepped in, took over as section coordinator. She was, I mean, duly voted in by the by the board. There was a, a call put out for anybody willing to take over as, as section coordinator. Two candidates stepped forward. She ended up being favored. And so they elected her as, as the new section coordinator. And she helped to shepherd the match last year to being well, it was already on track to sort of be rescheduled at another range, or actually at the same range on, on a different weekend. And that match was significantly smaller, of course, because most of the people from out of the state weren't able to travel because they'd sort of taken off vacation for the original date when it got canceled. So it was a smaller match, but I think accomplished the stated goal of the the state championship, which is to, to determine a, a state champion, to have everybody, at least in the state, come and shoot and sort of shoot heads up and see who gets to carry the title of best PCC shooter, best limited shooter, you know, in the state for the year. So that match for given the circumstances, I think it, it, it was pulled together as best it could be, but obviously there was, there was a lot of negative sentiment about North Carolina and the North Carolina section match after that, as it happened when 2019 rolled around there, there was nobody really looking to host the the match in North Carolina. Uh, so Carolina Guns and Gear, which was the club that hosted in 2018, it was looking like they had some impending neighbor trouble and might potentially get shut down or, you know, forced to to change the range in some way that that basically made it infeasible in February to plan for a, a match in October. And so they were out of the running to host, even though they were potentially willing and the club that had hosted the match in 2016 and 2017, Rowan Practical Shooters, uh, just didn't have the the staff on hand to be able to to sort of manage the the circus that that is planning and executing a, a, a level two match. And so there was there was sort of nobody stepping forward. Now, in years past, for for many many years, Sir Walter Gun Club had hosted the North Carolina section match. In fact, the first year I shot it in 2013, uh, it was there as well as in 2014 and, and 2015. And sporadically over the years, it's it's been there. It, it was sort of the the solid pillar. It, it had hosted the match many times. There were lots of old t-shirts floating around of, of different matches that, that had been hosted at Sir Walter. But the, the monthly match there right now is eight stages. It's over 200 rounds. Maybe not over 200 rounds. It's pretty regularly 175, but they do their thing. They they were happy to just keep running 12 great club matches a year. And as I've said before on this podcast, I think the Sir Walter club match would not be poorly received as a state match in most states in the country. And so the you know they, they don't really need the money. They don't really need the prestige. So the, the incentives weren't really there for for them to want to volunteer to host because it's it's a heck of a lot of work. But when it looked like no other club was was going to pick up the mantle, we looked around and started talking to the to the folks who run the, the Sir Walter match and put a proposal before the board. It got approved in March and the planning got started on having the NC section match here, which if you've ever, you know, talked to anybody who's been involved in planning one of these matches getting started in March for a match that is happening even in October, ideally you, you would like to have even, even more time than that. Um, that's, 
that is not doing it in a, in an absolute hurry, but it's it's definitely a good clip. You know, you these things don't necessarily come together quickly, but as it happened, everything ended up coming out quite all right. So, like I said, I don't think it necessarily requires a caveat to say because I think if you talk to anybody that shot the match, they'll they'll say that it was a, a pretty good match. But given that it turned out that well, given that it was starting from sort of behind the eight ball with all the negative sentiment about the match from last year and the fact that the the planning didn't even kick into high gear until a couple months later than than would be ideal. I think the fact that it did come together as well as it did is a testament to everybody involved, which does not include me. And, and I, I want to make that clear up front. I, I was not behind the scenes doing hardly anything. Uh, I, you know, sometimes I was a sounding board for ideas, but I was not involved in coordinating any vendors, making any purchases. I did submit one stage design for the match that ended up um, not being received well, and it got swapped out by a stage design from somebody else. So I didn't even end up designing a stage for the match, which is quite all right. I, I was happy just to sort of be a fly on the wall. And to her credit, um, Steph basically told me that that my job was to go practice, and she was she was gonna she was gonna deal with this. She didn't need you know me sort of trying to trying to poke my nose in, and that I do my part, and she'll do hers, and we'll have a good match. And and so you know, we'll get enough. back to what I think exactly made the the match itself so good in, in a bit. But just going from March all the way up to when the match actually happened in October, it's it's worth mentioning a couple of, of other things that happened. Um, one thing which I think was was great and was quite helpful was um, Steph did end up getting uh, both a range officer and a chief range officer class uh, scheduled and run at Sir Walter. And I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. It was something like 15 or 20 new ROs and eight or 10 new CROs, of which a number of, of both worked the match. And one of the, the things that one of the one of the many staff perks, and we'll come back to the, the staff perks later. But one of the many staff perks was that if you took that class and then you worked the match, you got your your class fee refunded, which, you know, I mean, it's not it's not big money, but it's something it's saying. If you you know put in the time, we'll we'll cover the tab if you'll help us out by by working the match. So I, I think that that was a good system, and it got a, a pretty good turnout for both classes. That was advertised well ahead of time as a part of the staff package. the The staff package, as advertised, also included uh, lunch on the range all four days. If you were or, yeah, all four days set up Thursday, staff shoot Friday, and then working Saturday and Sunday. Not to mention a small stipend just to cover either hotel or gas if you were local, and then a I think roughly twice as much of a stipend if you were coming from more than some distance away. I think it was like 50 miles or something. So the folks that drove up from Charlotte and had to get a hotel room, hopefully the, the stipend at least covered the hotel and the gas for the, for the round trip. Because ultimately, while I think the the NC section match is it is supposed to be a sort of a bringing together of all the competitors in North Carolina. It should also be, I think a, a bringing together of all the staff as well. So ideally it's not all just the members that the, the individual club working the match. It's, it's actually everybody it, it's officiated by everyone from the state. And so everybody in the section actually sort of pitches in and helps. And honestly, when you're driving from further away, it, it helps to have a little more of your costs offset. You know, I, I was lucky enough to get to, sleep in my own bed every night. I, I kind of thought that uh, I didn't need any stipend at all, but 
the staff certainly appreciated it. And in fact, we were pretty surprised afterwards that a number of the staff sort of were surprised when they got the the checks afterwards because I guess they had they had signed up not even expecting any payment at all. And and more power to them. I mean, I think that you know this definitely isn't a, a sport you're going to get rich volunteering in. And so we we appreciate that they did that. But um, the fact that that there was that little bit of of giving back for the staff, I think I think it'll make the staff want to come back and work next year, which is, which is what you want. You want experienced staff who want to work your matches. You don't want sort of the people who are only doing it for a free match fee or because they aren't going to be shooting. So they might as well work when, when those are the people running your match, the, the quality suffers, the, the quality of the calls, the, the professionalism, it, it goes down. And I think we had a very high quality staff. I think we had a very professional group of ROs. And, and I think the, the rules were, accurately enforced by people who actually aren't just ROs that, that actually compete. So when the match itself actually rolled around, so like I was saying, we, we built the, yeah, we built the all 10 stages on Thursday. And this was, bear in mind, this was in October. So this was, this was the, the first weekend in October. So it basically preempted the, the weekend when Sir Walter would normally have their club match, uh, just because that was sort of the weekend that that was easiest to get on the calendar at the at the club, and they were sort of already used to having the, the club shut down for that Friday and Saturday to to set up the club match or the yeah the monthly match, and so we just kind of tacked on a Thursday before and a Sunday afterward. And despite it being the first weekend in October, it did hit a high of ninety seven that day, which was pretty unpleasant. Um, I'm I'm definitely glad that we were only building stages in the ninety seven degree heat. And we didn't shoot until the next day. Now, we did shoot in 90-degree heat, which is still pretty unusual in North Carolina for, for October. But it wasn't 97, so there's that. Um, staff day went pretty much as smoothly as you as, as we could have hoped. Um, we were shooting in squads of about nine. Um, in my experience, you don't get much faster if you shoot in squads smaller than nine. I mean, at eight kind of thing um i'd say a squad of eight probably runs about as fast as a squad of 12 you know there's a there's a there's a diminishing returns curve at both ends uh for for how fast things run with with number of people on a squad but it was uh it was good i i will say i definitely i don't i know that i didn't quite shoot absolutely to the level that i would have if i were just showing up as a competitor just because we didn't have as long to look at the stages and walk them through and, and just spend as much time visualizing. But I, I was happy with, with how well I shot. And honestly, I think that it's fine to kind of toss, like not, not do your best at one match a year in the interest of, of trying to put on a good experience for, for everybody else. You know, if, if people from a couple States around go home and, and say, man, that North Carolina match was, was really quality. Um, that's, Honestly, that's better than a good match placement as far as I'm concerned. So uh, I, I'd take that trade off any day. Now, that said, I, I do, you know, I was still pretty happy with how I shot. I had, um, from memory, I think, I know I had one mic and I think I had two deltas for the whole day. So, you know, not not too bad. The, the mic was a, a hardcover, full diameter barrel hit. So just, you know, a couple inches off the, off the A zone into a barrel um, that was, that was on stage three, which was one of those stages where uh, there were, there were a number of interesting plans. Um, and I kind of picked the one that seemed the most straightforward to me. And 
watching the video later, watching other people shoot it, I think I probably would have chosen to do that one differently if I'd had more time to look at it. But, um, but I can't, you know, lay my performance at, at the feet of that. Even if I picked a bad plan, that that's no excuse for for throwing that mic. So, the the two things kind of stacked on top of each other. That was that was the stage that I think I I did the worst on. But other than that, I you know mostly shot good points, stayed under control, hit all the things. Didn't have any standing reloads. Didn't like throw any mags across the range. So it was um it was a pretty good pretty good match. I was I was pretty happy with my performance, but what really I think made it worthwhile to me was the experience for the competitors, which for a number of reasons, I think was, was really quite excellent. One of which is definitely the weather. So Saturday was overcast and in the seventies. So there was no sort of sun beating down on you. It was just kind of this nice, consistent, even light. And, and honestly, it was just, it was just gorgeous. It was just nice outside. And so the, the way the shooting schedule worked, on Saturday, we ran two groups of shooters. So there was a, a morning and an afternoon squad. And they ended up finishing in about five hours each. So 10 stages, 30 minutes a stage. So if you wanted to come shoot and, you know, you you <laughs> you wanted to be home by lunchtime, you know, you could, I think we started at, had our first shots at eight. And, you know, the, the morning squad was done by 1230 or 1245 or so. So it was, um, you could definitely hustle through. We had smaller squads for those days. And then Sunday was just an all day format. And those squads were 10, I think. Um, so a little bit bigger squads that, that moved a little bit more slowly, but still with that number of people, it, things, things kept moving pretty well. There were a number of things that I think made the match good. Um, one, and this is something that I've talked about before, but one is, is just that we gave the competitors five minute walkthroughs. They, they're just, there was no reason to kind of rush them through and try and shortchange them getting to look at the stages. Uh, I think the, on the whole, the, the match was fairly well balanced there were two short courses, three mediums, and the other five were, were long courses. And you definitely, on the, the five long courses, you definitely wanted the, the time to look around and, and really see see what was going on, find the different trade-offs, find the angles. Because, I mean, that that's what makes the, the shooting interesting is not sort of having to come up with a, a quick plan that's, that's just good enough. I mean, sometimes you do have to do that, but when competitors can really kind of strategize and, and be as prepared as they can be, I think you get a, a better level of skill expressed in the match. And so I think it's more satisfying for them. And honestly, so working as staff, working on one of the stages, we were on our feet pretty much continuously, except during the competitor walkthroughs. And that, I think that's the way it should be. And so giving them five minutes to walk through the stage and giving us five minutes to sit down and have a rest and drink some water and, you know, eat some snacks or something and, and get to, just recover and then start turning shooters as fast as we could. And then, you know, having that break was good for the staff. It was good for the competitors. I, I don't, I don't get the three minute walkthrough thing. I don't think it saves that much time. And I, I think it, I think it makes the the match just less interesting to shoot. I think it makes it less satisfying. And I, I was happy that, that we went with the, the five minutes. Um, probably the, the thing that, got sort of the most raised eyebrows for us was the fact that throughout the whole match, the competitors never had to paste reset or, or do anything related to the stages. They were just there. They were just able to shoot because we had enough staff. We didn't have a ton of staff, but we had just enough staff assigned in just the right spots that they could 
break down the stage, divide and conquer and, and get it pasted and reset in time for, for the next shooter to shoot. And so, especially on those Saturday squads where it was seven man squads, you know, you had all the time you needed, either if you were early in the order, then you could reload your mags, brush them out, take whatever time you needed. Nobody was, you know, handing you a roll of pasters and saying, Hey, Hey, go paste. So you could, you could just focus on, on being a competitor. And again, I, I don't, it didn't take that many staff. I mean, my stage in particular was a, uh, it was a 29 rounder with targets kind of spread all over a, a, a bay. And we had four people working the stage and that ended up breaking down to one guy running the timer, one guy running the tablet and two guys pasting and resetting solely. And then when the guy running the timer had finished scoring all the, the targets, the guy with the tablet went up range to get the competitor signature and the guy running the timer would paste, uh, you know, two, three, four of the targets. So it only took about three guys. If they were dedicated and, and sort of divided up the stage, it only took three guys, you know, two and a half. If you count the timer guy doing double duty, it only took that many people to, to reset a 29 round stage relatively quickly just by being organized, dividing up the stage. You know, we had, we had three full-size poppers all the way down range. And so as soon as the, the range was clear, you know, we had one guy setting and painting those because you didn't have to wait for the RO to walk around and score them. As long as they were down, you could, you could go and reset them. We didn't have any calibration calls, but obviously if you, you know, had one that was still standing or you had a mark on it or something, you know, don't, don't reset them then. But by, by doing that and then sort of prioritizing, getting the, 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 those targets reset quickly and then pasting, moving back up range, you know, we were, we were turning it quickly and it didn't take an army of people, but just by being smart about how we use people, it, it, uh, it went pretty effortlessly. And by all reports, the other stages were, were pretty similar. They just divided it up, got things, you know, gotten a rhythm, certain people pasted certain targets and, and it just, it didn't take that many people, but it, it, as a competitor experience, I think it was, I think it was excellent. We, so working stage 10 in particular, um, I guess the, the most interesting thing to talk about was we did have, uh, two instances where we ended up uh, pulling a target for the competitor. And honestly, in both cases, it was, it was kind of a non-issue. It was, um, you know, we had, a a suspected, or I called a, a mic or whoever was the, the timer running the timer called a mic on a target. The competitor wanted another look at it. When the, the second look said, I still think it's a mic, you know, we threw an overlay on it, looks like a mic. At that point, you know, the stage can't continue until the, the target is either repaired or replaced. And so uh, in one case in particular, I just, I just straight up, you know, told the competitor, hey, here are your options. We can pull the target or, you can, or we can score it as is. He said, pull the target. So I did. By then, my, my crew already had a, a replacement ready to go. So we just pulled the front one down, stapled the new one up. And the next shooter I think was making ready within 30 seconds. You know, we did the, what you're supposed to do with the pulled target. You know, the RO signs it, the competitor signs it, you set it aside, you call the range master, range master came and scored it. And then the, you know, we, we just moved on and, you know, we didn't, we didn't let it bog us down. We didn't make a big deal out of it. I didn't, you know, I didn't get into any kind of it, like it wasn't personal. Like it wasn't like, oh, this guy's doubting me. It's like, no, like he wants another look at, at this target. Cool. Let's pull it. We've got spares. Put another one up and let, you know, let's keep this train moving. And um, I, I think, I think the, I think folks appreciated that, you know, it wasn't, um, it's just, it, like I said, it almost wasn't a, a big deal. It wasn't, it was a non-event almost. 
other than that, you know, it was, it was really not that, not that eventful. I think we, you know, we had one of the interesting things about Sir Walter is the the walls are PVC with a snow fence to, to sort of as a vision barrier and PVC has a lot of nice things going for it. It is cheap. It is lightweight. It is easy to work with, uh, but it does shatter. It does, you know, if you, if it, if it, a bullet even clips it, you got, you got a couple inches of PVC above and below it kind of that turn into shards. And even there, you know, a couple times that we had a, a piece of the wall break, either because a, a competitor clipped it or, you know, bumped into it in a weird way or something, then we just, you know, they'd set us up with little repair kits. You just slap a, another piece of PVC on it to reinforce it, wrap it in some tape and, and keep on moving. So the whole thing as a, honestly, as a, as a CRO, it really couldn't have gone any better. We didn't have any, any significant scoring calls. The, I was actually worried about the three full-size poppers digging themselves in and, and having to watch the calibration. And so every squad I was walking down range and, and just checking them just to see if the, you know, jiggling the bolt, just to see if it, just to see if it was coming loose, giving it a little tap. And, and they never did, which I mean, it probably hadn't rained in two, maybe three weeks. So the ground was pretty dry. So even being full-size poppers, they, they didn't really move much at all over the course of the match. And so, you know, things, things just cruised along. Um, the, the staff lunches were very well received. Um, that, I think is definitely something that can be an afterthought. Um, I know probably the biggest complaint about the lunches was that there weren't any for the for the competitors, which was just a a side effect of the fact that they were catered boxed lunches based on the headcount of the the staff available. But um, the the quality of the food was quite good, and the I think all the staff were uh, were, were quite pleased, and some of the competitors were um, in some cases I think somewhat jealous. But um, you know. That's, uh, that's life. Other than that, um, I guess, so, okay. So the one other interesting thing about the way that we ran stage 10 is that we wanted to go above and beyond the way that most level two matches run their, their chrono. And we did this in a couple ways. One is just doing more than just chrono. So we actually did a proper equipment check. So, um, I, I wasn't actually down there while it was running, but from what I was told, they were gauging mags for any division that had a, a 140 or a 170 mag limit. So carry optics and limited, they gauged to make sure they made 140 and open the gauge to make sure they made 170. Um, they were doing, uh, they, they had the overlays to kind of check belt distance. Um, I, that one's that, that rule is so generous. I don't really think there's, there's much of a risk there, but it's a, it's a rule in the rule books. You might as well check it at, at the <laughs> equipment check station. Uh, and then the, the one way that I think we, Oh, and then they did also weigh the guns, um, for production, which is not unheard of. Um, but it, it is, uh, also not ubiquitous either. And again, I, especially since they made the change from a two ounce allowance to the, the four ounce weight allowance up or down in, in production, you'd, you'd really have to be trying hard with, you know, brass base pads and tungsten guide rods and whatnot to, to really go over the weight limit in production. But it doesn't take that long to take the empty gun, throw in a mag and, and throw it on the scale anyway. So, you know, why, why not do it? That was, that was kind of our attitude. And, um, something else that, that we were kind of trying to puzzle out how to, how to do the best was, 
doing a little bit better than just asking competitors just to hand, you know, a mag with whatever bullets they wanted to be shot over the chrono. Because is do we think that it's common that people are trying to cheat the chrono? No. But if you wanted to, it would be quite easy in that scenario. You just you have the one magazine of chrono ammo and when it's your turn to go up to the chrono, you just hand him that mag and for the whole rest of the match you just shoot whatever you want. So the solution that we ended up going with was that on stage 10, which was the last stage that the competitors shot, my stage, uh, before the chrono. So originally we were going to, you know, do, I think what is somewhat standard and have competitors just uh, pull rounds out of a magazine on their first stage of the day, which is, is not a bad way to do it. But then we realized that sort of every stage would have to get the procedure just right. And we thought, let's just simplify it. Let's have one stage pull the rounds and let's make it stage 10 right before they go to chrono. And so we did. And where possible, we we pulled the rounds from the magazine that they'd actually used on the stage. So in the case of uh, non-PCC, it was uh, a magazine. We'd pull at least whatever rounds were in the mags left on the ground. And if we needed more rounds to get up to eight, then when we were, when the, the tablet RO was copying from the, the tablet to the paper backup, I would just, or whoever was was uh, pulling the rounds would just ask them for you know the the mag they had just unloaded from, and if there still weren't quite enough in there, they'd you know just grab another mag. In the case of PCC, usually it was just whatever mag they'd used for the whole stage, and just pull eight rounds, put it in a Ziploc bag, did that with with all the rounds for the squad, and then sent that down to Chrono. And I didn't hear about anybody having any issues with the Chrono, and. Honestly, I didn't really expect to. I don't. I don't think that most people are cheating. But I want. I, I'm okay with people thinking that when they come to the North Carolina section, they know that they better have their stuff squared away um, because we're going to check. Um, you know, I, I. I don't. I don't want to be. I want. I don't want to come across as like one of those RO headhunters who's you know making notches in their timer for every guy that they DQ. Um, but it, so it's, it is with a little you know, a little twinge of sadness that I do remember a couple of years ago that um, Todd Jarrett, who lives up in Virginia, came down and shot our our state match. And the whatever combination of limited tube and follower and magazine base pad that he had on his gun uh, just didn't quite fit the 140 mag gauge. And so he ended up shooting an open. Like, I'm not happy about that. But if people hear that story and people hear the story that I'm telling right now and know that North Carolina takes this stuff seriously. So if you come and shoot our state match, you know, be prepared, like take it seriously too. I'm okay with that. I, I think, I think that that is the attitude that, that we should have. I think that matches at all level, level two and up definitely, you know, area matches. If you're going to an area match, you're not having your gun weighed and boxed. Oh, we, yeah, we had a box too for production. Of course. Um, if you're not having your gun weighed and boxed in production, if you're not having your mags gauged and limited and open, you know, it's like, why, why even bother? Um, and so I, I think, I think having that level of rigor, just, it shows sort of the level of professionalism that, that we wanted to bring to this match. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. I'm not, I'm not happy that guys got caught out. I know, um, trying to think if they were, you know, there was, uh, one guy shooting carry optics who had a gun that was just too heavy. And so he ended up shooting open minor. Um, but that was, you know, he had just kind of gotten the gun used assumed that it was good to go and so he just kind of got got bit by that but um you know this is a this is a state championship this is a major match and 
I think that we should we should expect people to to be prepared for that. You know, if you shoot your first or second or third match at a at a state match, um, then maybe maybe that's just what happens. Maybe that's the way things go, um, and I'm okay with that. Um, this is this is a sport for people who take it seriously, and you know, at a local match, sure, show up, ask questions, run what you brung. You know, if you've got a holster that isn't quite legal at your first level one match, fine. Come out, shoot, be safe. Listen when people let you know, you know, take the feedback on board and six months in, maybe get a legal holster before you shoot a state match, maybe get a legal holster. But, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with, I'm content with, uh, how that worked. I would say the one other thing that was uh, perhaps slightly unusual about the, the way the match went was the, the prizes policy. And because of the way the schedule worked, where some people were shooting Friday, some people were shooting Saturday, some people were shooting Sunday, and basically nobody was around to do sort of a big awards dinner at the end. The solution that Steph came up with that I think is actually a, a good improvement on the, the normal model. Well, first of all, let's talk about the normal model in a situation where you don't have a, a prize table that competitors get to walk in order of finish. Um, typically what's done is all the prizes are just numbered and then you just basically do a random draw and, you know, competitor number 25 gets prize number 25, even if prize number 25 is useless to them. So classic example, two years ago at the, at the state match, um, I shoot 10 folio guns, um, and Steph actually won in the, the sort of random prize draw. She won a magwell for a 10 folio gun. So I, I shoot 10 folios, but I don't shoot limited 10 folios. In fact, not many people shoot limited 10 folios. So it, it wasn't really a particularly useful um, prize to win. Now, you know, it's better than nothing. It didn't cost anything to get. So we're not trying to look a gift horse in the mouth, but it, it definitely is. Th- there is the situation if you've been to a match that's run this way, where you end up with this kind of horse trading going on. You know, you, you get a, I mean, let's see, this would have been 2015. So four years ago, I got a, a $200 gift certificate from a, a custom limited and open gun maker. And I don't shoot limited or open. I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to let a, a $200 gift certificate change that. But I was able to talk around and, and the word got out that I, I had that and I was looking to sell it. And I think I turned it into a hundred bucks cash. And so, you know, I mean, cool. Yeah. A hundred bucks cash in my pocket. Like that's, that's cool. But the, the horse trading aspect of, of having to kind of wheedle and, and negotiate your, uh, your prizes to, to do stuff with them or, you know, post them on the local shooting forum or whatever. Um, we were kind of wondering to ourselves is, is there a better way? And so what Steph came up with, I thought was actually rather clever. So she basically took all the prizes and broke them down by, you know, however many of each that there were. So if there were 10 range bags or whatever, then, then they got divided into four groups. If there were, you know, six of something else and they got sort of divided equally among the, the four batches. And then each of the four batches were put out on a prize table. And when you went to go register and check in and pick up your pick up your shooter's bag and everything, you walked to the prize table at that point. And the you got to pick from the prizes that were available, you know, what what was relevant to you. And so there were, you know, in some cases it was highly specific stuff. It might be gear that fit a particular gun. It might be, I mean, you know, there there, there was the odd assortment of, you know, pink holsters and belts and mag pouches and whatnot. And, you know, that's, that's not the kind of thing you want to randomly give away, but for the person who 
is happy to have a pink range bag, then they can beeline straight for it, take it, and and they they can be quite happy with it. Um, you know, on the other hand, not everybody needs uh, you know another mag brush, but maybe you don't have one at all, and you would love to have one. And so it, I think it actually worked out quite well. Um, basically, there there was much much less of the uh, I got this prize, but you know now what do I do with it? Kind of syndrome, which I think was good for competitors. Um, as far as the match goes, the, I guess the one complaint was people didn't know that this was going on. And if they had known, they would have shown up earlier, um, which is fair enough. I mean, it was it was not planned necessarily. It was sort of it was a, a solution that was come up with uh, leading up to the match to sort of solve this problem of, of how to divide things in, a, in an equitable way. Um, but again, if the the way that the rules shake out rewards people who show up to registration early and, and aren't sort of trying to straggle in at the last minute, I'm okay with that. And, uh, you know, who knows who's going to host the, the state match next year. It, it won't be Sir Walter, I don't think. And so, you know, wherever it is, maybe they'll use that, that prize policy again. Maybe they won't. But I think... I think it worked out okay. I, you know, nobody nobody got shafted. There were still, I know at the very end, um, the staff. So, sw- slight aside here, the staff had a completely separate prize table that was not just the leftovers from the competitor prize table. There was, I talked about four groups, but there were also some some of the prizes that were donated were also set aside, and and the staff had their own random drawing for the order in which they got to walk the staff prize table, which was done after the, the staff shoot on Thursday. So, um, and every, every person from the staff got at least a, a one prize. There, there were more prizes than staff, I believe. So the staff had their own prize table. Everybody got a prize off of that. But even after that, I know the staff were encouraged to um, take a second run at the competitor prize table at the end of Sunday. And there were still like $50 blue bullets, gift certificates on the prize table. Um, there were still some zoo city armory, um, engraving gift certificates. I, th- I think, I think there was, there was like still one or two of those for like 50 or hundred bucks on the prize table. Um, so, you know, it's not like it was all just knickknacks and, and useless crap at that point. Like there were still like people got a chance to pick what they wanted and that's what was left after all of that was, was taken, which, I mean, there were a lot of blue bullets certificates. So the fact that there were a couple left, isn't a an indictment of them by any means. But what I'm saying is it wasn't, you know, down to breath mints and Tic Tacs. It was, uh, you know, there was still a pretty good selection all the way down as a, as a competitor. And so I think, I think it worked out for the match. I think it worked out for competitors because you could actually pick something that was useful to you. If there was more than one item, you could potentially pick the color that you preferred. If there was, you know, a gray and a blue and a green, maybe you got the, you know, the hat in the color that you liked more. Um, and also, I think ultimately the the thing that is probably puts sort of the cherry on top of this whole system is just the fact that as a sponsor, you, you got way more eyeballs on your prizes because in the sort of traditional prizes are randomly assigned and the prize is given straight to the person who, who gets it, the only person who sees the prize is the person who receives it or potentially, you know, maybe the person behind them in line or whoever they sell it to. Uh, whereas even the, the people who only put a couple things on the prize table and maybe they, you know, stuck around for a while. So like what, it, one thing that sticks out in my mind were the, the gift certificates for this zoo city armory company, which was a, um, 
I don't know the exact level. They they were one of the sponsors that was on the t-shirt. So they were they were a pretty high level sponsor of the match. And they put uh, six or eight gift cards for, you know, 50, 100, 200 dollars something like that on the, on the prize table and not everybody picked one up, but they at least saw it. They at least got their name out there. And so even though it wasn't uh, you know, in a traditional model, the eight people who got the gift card would know their name and then would cash in. But for by by sort of having this prize table model where people got to kind of go back and forth and, you know, compare and contrast and pick what they wanted, I think for a sponsor dollar, for, for sponsor value, it, it provides that much more exposure because people get to see your brand, people get to see your stuff, even if they don't pick it, you know, at least gets your name out there. And so I, I think yeah, you know, having Zoo City Armory banners on the range was good. I think having their logo on the t-shirt is fine. But having sort of almost everybody who walked that prize table had to see those gift certificates. For a young company, I think, you know, a year or two old local company trying to, to really start something up, the, I think that was that, that, that will probably turn out to be pretty good advertising for them. So, you know, it's, it's hard not to see something like that as a, as a win-win all around. I think it's better for competitors. It worked well for the match. It worked well for the sponsors. And so it, 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 it was just a good idea. And I think it worked out well. So enough about that. Um, as far as the, the, the finishing of the match. Um, so I ended up taking third production. I was about 92% of Tyler Turner, who is a GM from, uh, from Georgia who shot an excellent match, uh, genuinely quite well. Um, I also ended up taking, uh, so I, I had managed for the last two years, I was the state champion in production for, you know, whatever that's worth, um, which is, you know, kind of a cool title to, to have, but, um, another excellent shooter, Doug Scott put in the work and, and shot a better match. And so he is the 2019 North Carolina section production champion. So congrats to him. And I think the one thing that has been going around on on Instagram uh, is also just the trophies, which again, it's not it's not like they were revolutionarily different, but it was just a question of okay, here's what's expected. Is there a way to do anything slightly better? And what Steph ended up doing was doing things a little bit differently from last year. So last year, which I think is pretty standard at, at most matches, is. If you win more than one title, you get more than one plaque. So if you're the first in class and also the state champion, you get a plaque for the one and a plaque for the other. And it's who's going to hang up two plaques from the same match? And, you know, then you're kind of in the situation of choosing like, oh, which one do I care more about? And so, you know, it, it was just kind of a, a no brainer looking into it to just generate one plaque with all of the titles and awards that that applied for a given shooter. So. For example, uh, Richard Banks, local limited shooter, ended up taking first overall limited, first M class, and he was also the North Carolina section champion. Of course, he lives in North Carolina, so he took first overall. So there, there was nobody else to above him in the scores. Um, and by the way, he did get a match bump to GM for that. So uh, congratulations, Richard. But he got one plaque that has all three of those things on it, which I think is pretty cool. You know, he, he gets one piece of wood to hang up that when you, you know, the, the big letters say, you know, state champion or whatever. Uh, but, you know, if you look at it close, it's sort of an encapsulation of, of all the achievements that that match represents. So just uh, just the little things like that, I think, made this uh, made this overall a an excellent match. I think it was I think it was well thought out. It was well executed. And hopefully 
people who came and shot it felt like they got a good value for their money, had a, had a good experience. It was a, you know, fair test of, of competitor skill and, and ultimately the, uh, the best shooter won in each division. And from what I saw that that's absolutely the case. So, um, that's, uh, that's the 2019 NC section. I, I just wanted to talk about that, get the, get the word out and, you know, let no, folks know how much work went into it. And, and I think what a good result came out of it. And here's to, uh, you know, hoping that nationals is a, is it for us low cap shooters, obviously the high cap shooters have already had their nationals. Um, here's to hoping that nationals is at least as good a match. Um, but you know, even if it isn't, we'll, um, I guess we'll still have a national champion at the end anyway. So there's that, but I, I did want to just give a, give some credit and some thanks to all the folks that, that did make the match happen. First and foremost, Robert Walker, the match director of the the monthly match at Sir Walter. He was the, the board president for a while, I think a number of years. Um, he stepped in and basically did all the sort of on the range match direction type work. Um, Steph handled the the sort of setup and logistics and coordination of the the sponsors and all that. But in terms of actually getting the the stages on the ground and planned and debugged and all and resourced, you know, so all the walls built and and having enough barrels in each spot and everything, Robert uh, managed that. Chris De Bruin, who is our normal every month stats guy, um, did stats for this match as well, including running all the tablets, making sure that the tablets were changed out or, or had fresh batteries whenever they needed it, gathering up all the, the carbon copies of the score sheets for paper backup purposes as mandated by USPSA. And uh, Jarrett Heinrich, who was both the chrono officer for all the competitors and also before the match, he was the guy who did all of our coordinating all the, the stages. The stages were designed by a couple different folks, um, but he sort of made them all consistent and, you know, designed a couple himself uh, as well as sort of riding herd on getting them submitted to USPSA and, and integrating any changes that they required to, uh, you know, make the, the stages absolutely idiot proof. And so that was uh, definitely a, a, a probably a more involved process than it should be ideally, but props to him for, for working it through and putting together what I think were a quite good set of stages. Andy Mast, who is our, he was our Mr. Fix-It quartermaster for the match. He's also the, he is the chair of a couple of committees at Sir Walter and just generally works harder than anybody has any right to do. Uh, and then Dennis Phillips, who is another Sir Walter club member, who is the guy who basically built and repaired Oh, all the repairs. So many walls shot. Um, he's he's our PVC wizard who puts all the walls together. Obviously, Steph, section coordinator, did the match directing part leading up to the match, the sponsor coordination, planning all the logistics and the, the vendors and the, the match book and everything. And obviously, there are more folks out there that contributed in, in many different ways. All the, all the staff that volunteered... Um, you know, hats off to you guys. You you are the ones that made this match. Um, honestly, I think that one that people are going to be talking about quite favorably for for quite a while to come. So, thanks to everyone. It was uh, it was a good match. I I'm proud of what we did, and I uh, I hope everybody remembers it fondly. Well, that wraps up this episode of Short Course. If you'd like to get in touch, my email is podcast at barryshooting if you'd like to support the podcast, consider buying a shirt at barryshooting.com shop. 
Talk to you next time.